Good morning, church. It is good to see you. I've been bouncing around this summer, whether it's a mission trip or a camp or whatever it may be. But I'm thankful that when I'm gone, somebody here is to bring the word as Brian did last week. And um, of course, part of that means that when I get back, I may or may not have a voice. So if it gets a little raspy this morning or I pause to get a drink, I apologize in advance. Um, I just have to stop um, encouraging the kids in all that I do, right? Hey, what does it mean to be, um, uh, live a Christian life? What does it mean to, to live a Christian life? In our series, Let's Go, we've been focusing on the book of Acts and how the apostles, the disciples, these church leaders, they're going out and sharing the good news. It's like, well, look what they did. Look what he did. And it's like, wow, look at these leaders. What about the rest of us? What about the rest of the church? All the people that are not named, that their lives were changed. How about all those people? We don't know who they were, but it says they placed their faith in Jesus. They believed the good news. Isn't that us? Our names aren't in the Bible, but isn't that us? We've placed our faith in Jesus Christ. How, how are we supposed to live? I'm, I'm seeing Philip, Stephen, Paul, soon, well, Saul, soon to be Paul, right? But how about us, the church? How are we supposed to be living? Open up your Bibles to the book of Ezekiel 43. There is a book we don't always dive into. Ezekiel. In the Old Testament, somewhere in the prophets, open up, you'll find it. Right? Um, If you need a table of contents, you can get there. But as Christians, here's what I'm thinking. I want to pause over these next couple weeks in this series, Let's Go. And and not. we're going to stop and ask because I want to make sure we understand what it means to live the Christian life. What is it, you know, it's like, well, let's go, okay, but, well, let's say I'm not a church leader. Let's say I'm not an apostle or disciple, but as the average Christian, how am I supposed to be living this Christian faith? What does that look like? In Ezekiel 43, God's been given this prophet all kinds of messages, a lot of doom and gloom and judgment, but, but finally in the later part of this book, you start getting some good news. And in this, this section, we see that God, he is full of grace he is full of mercy. He's got all these great plans for, for his people. Despite the fact that they turned from him first. Let's not forget that. That's why the judgment was coming. Because when you choose to, to snub your nose at God and say, I don't want to listen to God. I don't need God. You know what God does? He's like, okay. If you don't need me, you want to reject me, you will face the consequences of that, right? That, that's biblical. And it's in this section here in chapter 42, Ezekiel has this vision. It's like, here's the temple that God's making. And he gets all the dimensions. So if you're a carpenter and you're like, I'm into dimensions, I'm into uh, the width and the height and everything, read Ezekiel 42. You're going to get all the dimensions of the temple. But in Ezekiel 43, God enters the temple. Read along with me, verse 1. After this, the man brought me back around to the east gateway. Suddenly the glory of the God of Israel appeared from the east. The sound of his coming was like the roar of rushing waters and the whole landscape shone with his glory. Think about this. Without, without the glory of God, Ezekiel's building that he's looking at is just a, the temple is just a mere building. But with the glory of God, it becomes a sacred place, a dwelling place of God himself. And the radiance of his presence is there. And we call it, and it's hard to define the, the glory of God. We call it the, the, um, the radiant outshining of his presence or his character. 
The Bible says that the glory of God radiates in all his creation. The cross girls, I was talking with them early in first service. They had been out west for a couple weeks, seeing the redwoods and Utah, the arches and just all, everything. And they said, how can somebody see all this and not believe that there is a God? Exactly. In the book of Psalm 19, it, it says that God's glory radiates to his creation. When you look outside and you see something amazing that you've never seen before, you know what? It's God's glory just radiating. And yet there's this, uh, also the concept of the visible, tangible glory of God. It's called the Shekinah. It was in, in, we see it scattered throughout the Old Testament. And sometimes it was, it was like a cloud. In the, in the book of Exodus, the cloud that stood by Israel in the wilderness. And it's, it was the cloud that the glory of God spoke to Israel from. And it was the cloud from which God met Moses uh, with. And it was the cloud that was stood by the door of the tabernacle. And it was the cloud from which God appeared to the high priest in the holy place. It was the cloud which appeared to Ezekiel in the earlier chapters of Ezekiel. And it was in this, this, this cloud in which we say that was the glory of God. And Ezekiel experienced this vision now. And the, the glory of God was seen and heard in a different way. This time Ezekiel says, he goes, it was like the sound of this awesome rushing water. You ever been at the bottom of a waterfall? I mean a big waterfall, not a trickling waterfall, but a big waterfall and it's, it's loud. And if you're talk, trying to talk to somebody, it's like, it's sort of hard to talk right now because the waterfall is really loud, right? How about the Grand Canyon? I, my, or Grand Canyon, the, um, I'm sorry, um, Niagara Falls. Anybody ever been to the bottom of those before? I mean, you, maybe you take it out, of, there's a boat, you go down and, and you get pretty close my nephew was just there and he sent a little video out, put it on Facebook and he's trying to talk and he's, he's screaming because it's so loud. It's an amazing thing. And then look how he describes it here. He says it was like, a, it was like the rushing water. He sort of pictures this like a, like, a, like a waterfall come down. It's making so loud. But it wasn't just loud. It was massive. It was radiant. It says the whole landscape, the whole landscape shone with his glory. Can you imagine, you know, when we see sunsets, we see just an area like, oh, look at the sunset. Can you imagine the whole landscape radiating with this glory? Well, how did Ezekiel react to this? The same way he reacted in Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel chapter 10, when he, when he came before God in 3 and 9 and other chapters, he fell face down. I mean, how else do you meet God except face down in, in all humbleness, Right? Look what happens next. <clears throat> Verse 6. And I heard someone speaking to me from within the temple. While the man who had been measuring stood beside me, the Lord said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place where I will rest my feet. I will live here forever among the people of Israel. They and their kings will not defile my holy name any longer by their adulterous worship or other gods or by honoring the relics of their kings who have died. Verse 8 goes on to say, they've put their idol altars right next to mine with only a wall between them and me. They defile my holy name by such detestable sin, so I consume them in my anger. Now let them stop worshiping other gods and honoring the relics of their kings, and I will live among them forever. The, the voice of God himself spoke from the temple. And God proclaimed basically this, 
This is the temple in which I reign. This is the temple in which I stand. This is the temple in which my glory is filling. And you know what? I'm looking around at everything around me, and it is sickening. These adulterous other people, worshipers, kings, worshiping other things and not worshiping me. He lists their sinful practices. God's like, if you want to worship them, I will distance myself from you. But now I'm coming back to the temple and I'm cleaning house. This place is to be holy. Bible teacher uh, Warren Wearsby said this, this passage reminds us that people who frequent holy places ought to be holy people. Don't we expect that when we come to church? You expect godly people to be in a godly place. You don't expect to show up at a godly place filled with ungodly people. And that's what's happening here. The Jewish remnant, when they returned to their land, they were going to rebuild the temple, which is, this is a message they needed to hear. It's a message that we need to hear. Look at verse 10. Son of man described to the people of Israel the temple that I have shown you, so they will be ashamed of all their sins. Let them study its plan. And they'll be ashamed of what they've done. The first thing God says, you know what, I want them to see this temple. Why? Because the direction they've gone is so bad, they should be ashamed of it. Before you can get right with, or before you can live for God, you've got to get right with God. He goes on to say, describe to them all the specifications of the temple, including the entrances, the exits, everything else about it. Tell them about its decrees and laws. Write down all these specifications and decrees as they watch so they'll be sure to remember and follow them. Now watch this. And this is the basic law of the temple. Absolute holiness. You might want to underline that. The entire top of the mountain where the temple is built is holy. Yes, this is the basic law of the temple. This message would open their eyes to sin. This message would bring them back to understanding this is the promised temple that Israel has been waiting on. God's going to restore his love and grace to all of these people. God wasn't finished with them yet. He wanted to gather them and restore them and rebuild them. But did you see what God said about the basic law of the temple? Two words. Absolute holiness. I mean, God defines holiness. He is holy. That's his character. That's his attribute. He is set apart. So God, being holy, wants his people to be holy. And the only way to be made right with God is to place our faith in God through the saving act of Jesus Christ on the cross. He was the ultimate sacrifice. There were animals that were going to be coming into this temple that he saw. Matter of fact, the next chapter describes all this. But they only point forward. All these animal sacrifices, they only point forward to the future when Jesus Christ, who is the Lamb of God, would be sacrificed and would end all these sacrifices. Matter of fact, in your Bibles, uh, go to the book of Hebrews, would you please? Like Ezekiel, hard to find in the Old Testament. Hebrews might be a little far, hard to find in the New Testament. Towards the back of the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 10. Key passage in which we should all be aware of and we should all know of Hebrews 10. We're going to start in verse 10. It says this For God's will, you always say, I want God's will in my life. You know what God's will is? Here, there's part of it right here. God's will was for us to be made holy in the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. 
under the old covenant, you know, think about the Old Testament, think about this uh, vision that Ezekiel had. The priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. They did this, but did that really keep them from sinning again? Was, was that the way they were forgiven of their sins? Read on verse 12. But our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins. Good for all time. Then he sat down in a place of honor at God's right hand. There he waits until his enemies are humbled and made a footstool under his feet. For by that one offering, he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. By the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we are made holy. We are made not to be God, but to be like him. He is holy in the same way we should be holy. John chapter 17, the words of Jesus Christ says this. Just as you sent me into the world, I'm sending them into the world, looking at his disciples. And I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them so they can be made holy by your truth. Jesus says, just as my sacrifice makes me holy, it's, it's, it's going to make you holy. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. I'm writing to God's church in Corinth. To you have been called by God to be his own holy people. He made you holy by means of Christ Jesus, just as he did for all people everywhere. Who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours? Only those who call on the name of Jesus. Only those who confess with their mouth and repent. Only those. Just as he did for all people everywhere who call on the name. He makes them holy. One more. First Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 14. So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then. But now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God, who chose you, is holy. For the scriptures say, you must be holy because I am holy. What am I getting at here? In the book of Ezekiel, I want you to see how God shows his holiness. He says, I'm holy. I'm set apart. There are these other people in the temple, these other priests, these other kings. They are not only God is holy. And God says, because I am holy and because of what my son Jesus Christ has done as a sacrifice allows you to be made holy. We're in this thing that's called sanctification. It's a growing part. When you give your life to Christ, you're now growing closer to him on a daily basis. You're being sanctified. You're being made holy. That's the life of a Christian, to live a holy life. Fulfilling God's call to holiness requires as obedient children we need to be holy. We need to break away from the lifestyle and the culture of the world that surrounds us. And that's hard because we're saturated by it. And anytime we choose to live different than this world, we're looked at differently and we're made fun of or we're, we're like, oh, you're going to live that way? And you get called out. And instead of being patted on the back for living a holy life, you get made fun of. And I don't want to get made fun of. I don't want to be singled out. So maybe I'll just sort of join the culture here, right? This idea that God is separate, he's different from all creation, both in nature and perfection, his attributes, is so true. He is holy. But instead of building a wall around his holiness, God calls out to us and says, I want to share my holiness with you. Be holy as I am holy. <laughs> why? He's like, God, why would you do this? What's the motivation behind godly living? I mean, so why should I choose 
to live this holy life. What is the motivation? If you're in 1 Peter, you can turn to chapter 2. It says this, For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life that you inherited from your ancestors. And it was paid not with mere gold or silver, which lose their value. We've been kidnapped by the devil. We've been kidnapped by sin. We have been held ransom by sin. And we fall prey to living this sinful life. And God says, I'm going to rescue. I'll pay the ransom and free you. How much, God? 100,000, 200,000, quarter of a million? How much am I worth? God says, you're worth so much, I will give my son to die for you. That's the ransom payment I will give. I'll give my son to free you from those who have held you kidnapped. Look at verse 19. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. Verse 20. God chose him, Jesus, as your ransom long before the world began. But now in these last days, he's been revealed for your sake. Through Christ, you have come to trust in God. You've placed your faith and your hope in God because he raised Christ from the dead and gave him the great glory. See here, the precious blood of Jesus did not save us so that we could live a life of garbage, church. God did not sacrifice his son on a cross so we could just continue to sin and live whatever kind of life we want. Our holy God sacrificed his son so that we could be made holy and we could live a righteous life. But what does that righteous life look like? So here's what we're going to do for the next couple of weeks. We're just going to address this issue. Because I think sometimes we get confused. As to, well, how should a Christian live his life? How am, I, how am I supposed to be at work? How am I supposed to be at home with my family? When, when all this is going on and people are starting to get all, you know, again, all fired up about certain maybe political issues. How am I as a Christian supposed to speak truth? How do I live out my faith when, when the locker room that I'm in, there's nobody in the locker room that wants to live for Jesus. How do I do this? Open up your Bibles to the book of Colossians, okay? It's in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. A bunch of little small books right together. Turn there, Colossians chapter 3. Here's what I want to challenge you with in how we live out this Christian life. I do not want to be a chameleon. I hope you don't either. You know what a chameleon is? It just blends in wherever it goes. When you come to church, you look like a Christian. When you go out in the world, you look like the world. No, as Christians, we're called to live differently. We're called to live holy lives because we have a holy God who has ransomed his son for us. Colossians chapter three, verse one says this. Since you've been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven not the things of earth. So what's filling your mind? What are you putting in your mind? What are you reading? What are you listening to? What are you watching? Verse three, for you died to this life. Your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you, world, you will share in all his glory. See, because we know that Jesus is really raised from the dead, our identification is with him, becomes real. Because we are raised with Christ, we seek things that are above. The Apostle Paul mentions this in Colossians 2.12 with the picture of baptism. Remember what baptism is? You're going in the water, you're coming out of the water. And then verse 12 says this, For you were buried with Christ when, when you were baptized, and when you were raised to new life because you were raised through the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. 
Our baptism is symbolic of dying to sin, raising to new life through Christ. At, at, at camp, you know, like I said, we just got back from camp, and I don't know how many from our church were there, maybe 20, 30 were from, uh, from here were there. You know, we witnessed some incredible things that take place. Every year we, we, we pray, God, may somebody's life be impacted eternally. May somebody come to know you for the first time. And sure enough, eight students gave their life to Jesus Christ for the first time. As we sat in chapel, um, and, and, and a lot of great things happened at chapel, but at the end of the chapel, I'll never forget the first night. The first night, you know, we're sitting there praying like, Lord, somebody come forward. Our speaker spoke. He gave the invitation. And it's at that time, no one came forward. No one. And, you know, you sort of sit there like, somebody always comes forward. And you almost feel like, you almost feel like the, the devil whispering in your ear, you guys are failures, just give up. Just be, you know, discouragement, doubt, you know, like, are we doing the right thing? So, you know, that was the first night, or the second night of chapel. But what we discovered was that dozens made recommitments. Eight kids gave their life to Jesus for the first time. One night was, was just filled with this it's indescribable moment, but it sort of went down like this. The very next night, we sort of felt like, you know what? I don't know if, if there's somebody here that, that needs to give their life to Christ, but I do know this. There's a lot of broken kids here. And, and if there are students in here, if you're a parent, I'm going to tell you right now, if your kid isn't broken, they're probably pretty close to it. Dealing with doubt and discouragement, they probably feel there's a lot of kids in here right now that probably feel they're not worth anything. That they have to prove themselves to you as a parent and to everybody else their value. That they will do whatever they can, good grades, good sports, whatever, because they want to be loved. There's a lot of kids that are dealing with depression and discouragement. And so that night, as we prayed, we just uh, our speaker said, if you're dealing with anything that needs to be prayed over, just come right down here. We got all the, the, some of the huddle leaders are up front, staff is up front, just come down and pray with them. Sure enough, as the music started, a couple came down, trickled down, a few more came down. And it continued for a little bit. And then the speaker came over to me. He was going to close it off. And he said, Rex, why don't you just go ahead and close it tonight? And I was like, I don't think we're done. I know there's kids struggling. And so we went back up to the mic and just said, before we close, I know some of you are struggling. Until you get out of your seat and seek prayer, you're not going to be able to handle this. You're not going to be able to deal. You need to deal with it. So and I don't even know what else was said. I cannot remember. But I do know this, as we went back, a couple more kids came down, a couple more kids came down, and then it was just like that. The Holy Spirit hit the place. And more kids came up, and more kids started going to each other and praying with each other. They looked around, they saw a friend that was, maybe had their head buried, and they went over and they put their arms around them, and they hugged them and held them and prayed for them. And that continued, dozens of kids everywhere circling up, praying and weeping and crying and surrendering to Jesus Christ. For the next 20 minutes that happened, I'm telling you, you hear about the Asbury revival. If we wanted to, we probably could have continued all night that night. As we saw the, what was taking place, God was doing the heart of these kids. And as, uh, and, you know, it always gets even more emotional. As I'm standing down in front just watching, I put myself way back in the corner. Because I just wanted to see. And I just, and I stood back and I'm watching thinking, thank you, God. And then, of course, somebody has to come up and give me a hug and pray with me. And that was hard. It was in that moment, it's like, God is so good, isn't he? I'll tell you the allergies in here. 
right? But this year at camp, it wasn't just that moment. It wasn't just that night. We had three people get baptized too. We've never baptized people at camp. One, here's, I'll tell you one reason why. One, I guess we never said, hey, you want to get baptized? Two, I always feel like if you're going to get baptized, you need to have your parents there, grandparents there, your church there. Um, I, I hate to baptize a kid at camp and, and everybody else miss out on it. But one young man, he's one of our huddle leaders, contacted me before camp and he said, hey, uh, I've talked to my coach and mentor. He's going to be there. He helps at camp. Uh, can, can he baptize me? I said, yeah. Have you talked to your family? All good? Yeah. So we did. But then after that night where God just really moved, two more students came up and one of his little name is Keegan, a uh, little sixth grade boy. And he's like, he's like, Rex, I want to get baptized. And we talked about why do you want to get baptized? Have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ? Absolutely, yes. And he went on and, and I said, you go to church? And he goes, I go with my grandma, grandparents. Well, mom and dad won't take their kids to the church. Thank you for taking the kids to church. Because the little Keegan only went to church because grandma took him. Mom and dad had some issues going on and they don't go to church. But I called his mom anyway, called his grandma, told him what was going on. And they said, yes, we'll be there Wednesday morning for the baptismal service. Same with Ava. And we baptized a couple kids and we've never done that before. And it was an incredible moment again for these kids. And in baptism, again, taken under the water being, and then being brought out of the water. Why? Because we are raised to life with Christ. And so when you come out of the water, when you are raised to life with Christ, we act like Jesus acted when he was resurrected. When he came out of the tomb, he did not go back to the tomb. He did not go back to a stinky, dark place. He was done with that. When he was resurrected to life, he started ministering to all the people around him just as we need to minister to each other. And as he was resurrected from the life, he looked forward to it that moment when he was going to ascend into heaven. Jesus was heaven-minded, heaven you know, right? He was, he was focused on like, I'm, I'm going to be leaving this place. He knew where he was going. In the same way as Christians, our minds should be set on heavenly things. So we set our sights as, as the Apostle Paul here and he said, one theologian said this, earthly things are not all evil, but some of them are. Even things harmless in themselves become harmful if permitted to take the place that which should be reserved for things above. In other words, not everything on this earth is bad, but when we take those things and we replace God with those things, they become bad. Christ is our life, church. Paul wrote, for me to live is Christ. And I know it's easy for me to say, music is my life. Sports is my life. My job is my life. As a Christian, we should be saying, Jesus Christ is my life. And to do so, we have to get rid of all these things that oppose God. When we were on our mission trip uh, down in, in Charlotte with the youth group, one of the things they had to do was, was paint railings and then paint other stuff. The, the Last, one of the afternoons that we were in there, at the last part of the day, they had us start on these railings, and it's like, okay, there's a lot to do. We'll just paint for a little bit. They just had us paint right over it. They didn't have us scrape off the old paint. If you're a painter, you know, scrape off the old flaky paint, get rid of it, wipe it down, sand it down, and then paint. Why? Because if you don't, if you paint over the flaky old paint, what it, the new paint you put on, it's just going to come off, Right? The next morning we went back and, and a different person in maintenance said, hey, you know what, we probably should have had you scrape. I'm thinking, I was thinking the same thing, but I, it's your place. Um, and I didn't want to tell you. But anyway, so the rest of that day, a lot of our kids were scraping, sanding, wiping, and then painting. It's the same way with your faith, church. 
you gotta get rid of the sin in your life before you start living for Jesus. Because if you don't wanna get rid of the sin in your life and you try to live for Jesus, it's just gonna flake off. The new stuff that you're trying to do for Jesus is not gonna stick. There must be a repentant heart. There must be this getting rid of sin in our life and then living for Jesus. That's why the Apostle Paul here, look at verse five, this is what he says. He says, so put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Because of these sins, the anger of God is coming. You used to do these things when your life was still part of the world. When he said, put to death, that literally, that verb there means to make dead. You are dead to me. It isn't like play around with sin, I'm just going to excuse it. No, kill it. Get rid of it. Eliminate it. And Paul, when he, when he gets very strong with this, he, he starts listing out the sins. Did you notice that? You know, sometimes we pray, uh, God, forgive me of my sins. What sins? Well, you know. Guys, I struggle with a lot of things. Oh, you have struggles? How many of you in here have struggles? Oh, I got struggles. How many of you struggle with this? We don't want to raise our hand because we're embarrassed what that specific thing is, right? Do you see what Paul does? He listed them out. He could have said struggles. Instead, he said, have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires. Each of these things refer to sexual sins. And the sins mentioned previously are part of the way the world lives, not the way Jesus wants us to live. And every Christian, we're faced with that question, who am I going to identify with? Will I identify with the world or will I identify with Jesus? If you're going to identify with Jesus, guess what? you got to put to death some of these sins. And at camp, on one of our last nights, we're around the campfire. Senior boy, can you imagine this? 18-year-old young man gets up in front of the campfire, in front of 120 kids, and says, I struggle with pornography. And I've dealt with it for a couple years. And I've tried to get rid of it in my life and then I'm, I'm finding success and I'm finding victory in Jesus Christ. Can you imagine doing that in front of 120 of your peers? That is bold, that is courageous, but he was doing exactly what Jesus says. Put to death that sin. Sometimes when we struggle with sins, we think we can secretly hide them and get rid of them on our own. But what we need is somebody to walk beside us and hold us accountable. And that young man stood in front of this group and became very vulnerable and shared what his struggle was in hopes of not just confessing his sin, but finding victory in Christ through coming out of it, but then also saying, you can hold me accountable to this. What an amazing thing. We all need to have that kind of bold, courageous repentance. Now is the time, he goes on to say, to get rid of anger and rage, malicious behavior, slander, dirty language. Don't lie to each other, for you stripped off your old sinful nature and it's on, I'm sorry, and all its wicked deeds. All those little things, oh, that's just a little sin, little sin. Basically, a lot of stuff that comes out of our mouth, right? Learning to bridle our tongue. Sometimes maybe you say, well, I don't, it doesn't come out of my mouth. You're right, it comes out in your posts and your text messages and everything else. We struggle with a lot of these things, right? Why are we not to participate in these things? Paul said it, because you stripped off the sinful nature and all of its wicked deeds. Basically, in Christ Jesus, as holy saints of God, we are different people. And when the urge to sin to choose a way of living that opposes God comes upon us, the holiness of God that is already here says we need to deal with sin like it's an intruder in the house. When sin comes knocking at your door, you don't only say, get away. You don't let that, you don't even open the door. Strip it off. 
You know, at camp we have this thing called messy night. You may have heard about last year. But it's the night everybody gets dirty. We basically say, girls, get your swimsuit on. Get a dark shirt on. Boys, get your swimsuit on. And we're going to give each of you a, a new white t-shirt to put on top of everything. And then you're going to go on a color run. And you're going to go, and, and besides the color run, oh, there's going to be shaving cream, whipped cream, uh, pond scum. Uh, this year it was pig's feet. We actually had a relay race where they had to hold pig's feet. A legit feet of the pig, yes. Um, and it's like, that's so gross. That is so messy. Exactly. We want them to get really messy, really gross to the point where they're like, okay, I just need to change. Because that's the way sin is. Sin gets messy in our life to the point we finally come to this point in our life. It's like, you know what? We need to make a change in our life. We need to just strip ourselves off of all this gross stuff and get clean. Now, as you take a look upon the picture, here's the thing. Following messy night was chapel. Do you think I'm going to let these kids come into chapel like this? No way. No way. And there's actually a couple students that didn't like how clean I was, so I got attacked. Which my whistle and my... Um, Walkie-talkies still smell like shaving cream, and yeah. Um, but here's the thing. There's no way we're going to let them go into chapel. There's no way we're going to let them go into worship being a mess, right? They needed to be cleansed. So off to the lake we went. We get down to the lake. They just didn't, like, splash themselves with water. We just didn't get a hose. We put them in the lake. They went under. They immersed themselves, like being baptized, right? They went in. They got clean. They came out. And they went and showed up and came to chapel. It's like they stripped off the old when they went into the waters. And the fun part was, the only reason I bring the scripture up in this is because I watched the boys. Now, the girls didn't do this because the girls aren't this way. But I watched the boys. They were like getting to the lake and they were grabbing each other's old white shirts. And they are like literally ripping them like Incredible Hulk-like. They're like, they, they saw one boy rip his shirt and they're like, hey. And actually they were ripping off these nasty white t-shirts. And I'm going, strip off the old. Thank you, Jesus, for giving me that picture. Because that's what it was. They're like, let's get rid of this gross stuff. They're just stripping it off. That's the way we approach sin. God is holy. He calls his people to be holy, which means we are to strip off the old and put on the new. And over the next couple weeks, we're going to talk about how do we put on this new nature Look what it says in verse 10 and 11. We'll read this and we'll wrap it up. Put on your new nature. Be renewed as you learn how to know your creator and become like him. It doesn't say be him, but we become like him. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you're Jew, Gentile, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. Christ is all that matters and he lives in all of us. That phrase that Paul uses is a phrase that means to put on clothes. We're to clothe ourselves with these things. As we meet over the next couple weeks, and we gather to worship, first I pray that you're hungry to know what God's word has to say. To know our creator, to know God, so that we will become like him. Not become him, but like him. He is holy. He has called us to be holy. The newly clothed person as part of God's family. What do those clothes look like? We're going to talk about that. We're different. We are different. You have been chosen, church. I love what he goes on to say. Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, clothe yourselves with tenderhearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. He's picked you. 
you're on a new team, you're part of a new work program, you have a new uniform, you, you as Christians, we as Christians are clothed differently. Dave, would you come forward, please? We're gonna take time uh, just, to, just to pray. Some of us maybe need to seek some forgiveness. Some of us maybe we're wearing some messy clothes right now. Maybe we have been playing around with sin and not putting it to death. So just gonna have a time of prayer. And during that time, you can confess to God, a holy God. And when we get done praying, we're going to move into uh, communion. Communion is to be observed by God's children, to remember the sacrifice of what his son Jesus Christ did. The bread is body, the juice is his blood, shed and broken for us. So during this song, after I get done praying, after our time of prayer, as you are ready, come on forward. Grab a piece of bread, grab a cup, and go back to your seat and take communion. When you're finished, we'll close with another song. But if you're taking communion this morning with us, we invite you to just go to one of any of the three tables. And we invite you to do what Christ has commanded us to do. To remember his sacrifice. And to do so in remembrance of him until the day he returns. Would you stand please? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what an amazing God you are. God, as we look at the early church, we see the excitement, their growth. The question was, after they surrendered to you, how were they supposed to live? The answer is, we're supposed to live a holy life. We see, God, that you are holy, you're set apart, and you've said, be holy as I am holy. And there's no way we can be holy, there's no way we can live a holy life until we confess our sins, until we strip off the old. Heavenly Father, I know in this room we've all messed up. We've all sinned in our life. Some of us are possibly, Lord, holding on to some sins right now and we've not confessed them to you. Heavenly Father, right where we stand, in this moment, hear our prayers. We confess to you our sins. Some of us are struggling with sins that we don't want anybody else to know about. We've hidden them from other people, but you know. Some of our sins have been pretty obvious. And the person next to us can probably point them out. We confess these sins to you. Heavenly Father, forgive us. Strip off the sins in our life. Make us new. Cleanse us, Heavenly Father. We know from your word, if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So thank you, Heavenly Father, for forgiving us. 
Heavenly Father, as we come to the tables, as we grab that piece of bread and we take that cup of juice, help us remember that was the ultimate sacrifice to help us as we place our faith in you to take that next step in worshiping you. Help us, Heavenly Father, to be holy as you are holy, to be set apart, to be different from this world. So, Heavenly Father, we will take this bread, we will take this cup, and we will do this in remembrance of you till the day you return. In thy name we pray, amen.